So for anybody that's got, you know, that, that wants to be curious about anything, like if somebody's anxious, they can go, hmm, what does anxiety feel like in my body? And we can even have them ask simple questions like, is it more on the right side or the left side of my body? Hmm, is it on the right side? Is it on the left side? It doesn't matter what side it's on, but it can help us tap into this inherent superpower. We're like, oh, what does curiosity feel like? I, I'm sorry, what does anxiety feel like? But that, it's that, that slip was, oh, it's actually curiosity that we're feeling in that moment. And so we're shifting from being caught up in anxiety to kind of putting out that fire with curiosity itself. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and I'd like to welcome back my friend, Dr. Jed Brewer. How are you today? I'm good. Awesome. Well, I'll tell you, I reached out to you just like last night because you sent out an email to your email list on this hidden superpower. And let me tell you, that tagline really got my interest and it was an amazing article. So can you tell me a little bit about this hidden superpower that we all have? Did it pique your curiosity by chance? <laughs> yes, it did. Way too much, actually. Then I dove down even deeper. <laughs> Call it a rabbit hole. Go ahead, please. Tell us about curiosity. <laughs> yes, that is the superpower. Uh, we've been really studying how habits form. You know, my lab for years have been clinically trying to figure out simple ways to help people change habits. And actually, a lot of this has been converging on curiosity itself. Uh, from ancient Buddhist psychological teachings to modern day neuroscience. So where do you want to start? Well, there's a lot to it, but why don't we just define what curiosity is? Because I think maybe just a plain explanation, I think people mostly understand, but maybe just the, maybe a scientific explanation of what that is first. If I could give you a good scientific explanation, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the things that I can scientists, look it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. The sciences don't all agree on it, uh, oh. which is interesting, but I think of it as, you know, basically a drive to learn something. So you okay. can think of it that way. It's simple. Because that explains in your article, because you had your email article, and then there was a link to another article on drjud.com. Guys, got to go sign it, pick up, go click on that and, and sign up for the email list. Um, they're all super helpful articles. And um, you mentioned pleasant and unpleasant curiosity. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Yeah, let's get into that. So we all kind of have a sense for what curiosity is. And I'd been teaching this clinically for a couple of years. So this uh, last summer, I really dove into the scientific research to see what there was. And it turns, it was fascinating. <laughs> it was really fascinating. Were you turns, curious? I was super curious. <laughs> it turns out that there are two main types of curiosity. And there was a guy, Jordan Littman, who wrote uh, about 15 years ago, an article that really brought together a lot of the literature that was really the curiosity literature that was trying to figure itself out, so to speak. And he put it in very simple, plain language terms that I think that work very well. One is called D or deprivation curiosity, and the other is called I or interest curiosity. So with deprivation curiosity, we can start with that one. That's pretty straightforward. It's basically if we don't know the answer to something or we have, you know, it, um, we, we, 
let's say you watch a movie or something and you say, oh, I know that, that, that actress looks really familiar. And then there's this drive that says, you know, go Google that and find the answer. So it's really based on specific information that we don't have. So we're deprived of a piece of information. Once we get that piece of information, then we feel better. Uh, and that deprivation has been relieved, so to speak. We're no longer deprived. And so that curiosity is satisfied. I think of this as destination curiosity. So, you know, once we get to the destination, uh, the journey is over. The, the curiosity has been satisfied. Uh, and I'll come back to what it feels like in a minute, but let's now talk about interest curiosity. So interest curiosity, instead of the de- destination, is more the journey. So we might be driving along and just exploring things along the way. So we don't have a specific uh, concrete goal in mind. Uh, It might just be, oh, you know, why is the sky blue? You know, and it's not like there's some, you know, there is a, an answer to that, but we're just generally interested. Like, Oh yeah. When I look up at the sky, it's blue. Why is it blue? Well, it turns out if you, if you're interested, if you have some deprivation curiosity around that, uh, the sky's blue because the blue wavelength is shorter. And so there's just the probability of those, um, those molecules or that, that wavelength getting through the atmosphere more than red. And so that's why the sky is blue rather than red. But we, so we could say, oh, I need to know why the sky is blue or just be generally interested. Like, oh, that's interesting as we explore the topic and then try to remember what we learned in high school physics and all this stuff. <laughs> so there's destination, there's journey, but the two actually feel very different. But I'll just pause there. Yeah, I would agree. So this is exactly why I went on a whole food plant-based journey as a physician because I had a patient who got better very quickly um, and her daughter quit ADD meds in 30 days. And I was very curious, like, why was she able Mm. to do that? And then I started doing the research. Well, then it just kept going. Then it moved into behavior change and habit formation. Why are some people successful and others aren't? Why can some people (laughs) keep this on track and others not? So now I'm always looking for those tools. And then of course, when I found your research and all the things you do, I was like a big fan from the beginning. So that is Honestly, I, I totally see that difference. But when, like you also mentioned in your article, like driving down the highway, like how much longer? It's like the little kids mm-hmm. in the back going, when are we there yet? Are we there yet? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, um, that would be the deprivation. I'm assuming that we would be more inclined or, you know, or finding something in the grocery store you're looking for. It's like, oh, I know it was here somewhere. Where is it? You know, I right. couldn't find my Titino tea the other day. <laughs> like, where is it? Um, but yeah, I think so for sure. But so there is a definite, definite um, difference in the feelings. So mm-hmm. can you describe that? Because I think this goes back to your, your original research too on all the things that you've talked about with reward-based learning and all that. So can it, you- It does. And so we can just start with how they feel and then we can talk about how these fit with reward-based learning. So, you know, deprivation curiosity, we, we all have it probably you know, pretty often it feels like that itch that needs to be scratched. You know, it's like the kids in the back of the car saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You know, and kicking, kicking the back of the seat. <laughs> you know? Oh yes. So that fits with reward-based learning actually beautifully. So uh, let's say 
there's a, you know, the process is trigger behavior reward. And so the trigger is, oh, you know, I see something that I, I want to know the answer to. The behavior is to go look it up, you know, on Google or whatever. And then that reward is having that, uh, at, that, itch scratched. We're like, oh, I know the answer to that, that now. Even if, you know, these can be the most random things where it can be like, you know, why do, um, why do grasshoppers sound the way that they sound? You know, it's like, it's probably not going to change how I live my life if I go look that up. Uh-huh. But for some reason at that moment, I'm, you know, I have to, I'm just making that one up because I don't really care that much about why they sound the way they sound, but it is kind of interesting. Right. Now I'm curious. Right. So if I look that up, it's not going to, you know, it's probably not going to help me help my patients more, whatever. Mm-hmm. But that, there's that itch, it's been scratched. Mm-hmm. So that scratching of the itch is the reward that comes from looking it up. And so then my brain gets, you know, locked into doing that more and more and more. So even random things, you know, you, I'm sure you've seen this, you know, somebody's in the middle of a conversation with somebody else and they're talking about something and they're like, you know, there's some little tidbit that of information that would tend generally just to get, you know, it's like, oh yeah, we don't know that. And they keep going with the conversation. Suddenly everybody's in a race to Google it the fastest. So they can do that little tidbit of information that's not going to help their conversation, but actually pulls them away from the conversation. Hmm. But then is just uh, satisfying that itch because it needs to be scratched. So there's deprivation fits with reward-based learning in terms of negative reinforcement, right? Something's unpleasant. I need to know the answer. And we make that unpleasant thing go away by looking up the answer and it reinforces the process for us to do it over and over and over to the point where these, these become weapons of mass distraction, right? <laughs> Whether we're in a conversation, driving down the highway, in a meeting, whatever. Right. So there's deprivation curiosity. Interest curiosity also fits with reward-based learning, but has a different feel to it. So instead of that itch that needs to be scratched that feels kind of contracted with deprivation curiosity, it feels more open and free. Because we're like, oh, we don't really need to, we don't even know what answer we're looking for. We're just exploring something. That's why it's the journey. So it's positively reinforcing because it doesn't feel like I have to get this now. It doesn't feel itchy. It doesn't feel restless. It doesn't feel driven. It feels more exploratory like, oh, you know, why is the sky blue? Or, you know, one one thing that I learned uh, a few months ago was that there are certain animals that keep growing in size until they die. And I was like, oh, why is that? And I write about that a little bit in this, in this article. <laughs> yeah. Oh, why is that the case? You know, I didn't have to know the answer. I didn't know if there was an answer or how many answers there were, but it was just a really interesting thing. I was like, oh, I didn't know that, you know? And so it feels open, exploratory. I turn toward it. And the journey itself is the reward. So I don't have to get somewhere. I don't have to scratch that itch. It's just the journey itself that's rewarding, which actually is nice because it, one, it feels better than deprivation curiosity. <laughs> and two, it's, it's a way we can train ourselves to really tap into that interest curiosity because it can help us, like, like I talked about in the, in the article, 
it's a superpower that can help us work with all sorts of things. And maybe I can give a, I'll give a concrete example of that. Um, so we use curiosity as, as the, one of the core mindfulness practices in our app-based mindfulness training programs, whether it's for smoking, whether it's for uh, stress or emotional or overeating with our Eat Right Now program or with anxiety, with our Unwinding Anxiety program. And with the Unwinding Anxiety app, uh, it's somebody who was reporting in her journal that um, she was, she had, I think it was like panic disorder or something like that. She was just really, really panicked. And what we do is we help people start to see, map out their habit loops around, you know, these old habits, right? And she, she was seeing that the panic doesn't feel very good. And then we help them replace that old behavior with the new behavior of curiosity itself. And she, she wrote, um, you know, something about, you know, I noticed the feelings of panic coming on and then suddenly I just got curious and I went, Hmm, what does that feel like? And so the curiosity kicked in as her new habit and it felt so much better to be curious. She, uh, she described it as it took all the wind right out of its sails. You know, it wasn't just, I wasn't just saying it was curious. It really was. And so it deflated that, that fear of panic itself, which can kind of build on itself to build panic and just brought in her inherent, you know, superpower of curiosity. And she was able to, you know, work with it and, and it became her new habit, which is pretty amazing. So when you mentioned tapping into the superpower, you had an example as well with um, your colleague that you guys were in Colorado recently. Can you explain what that is exactly? <laughs> yes, I was teaching a, a, what I believe to be the first ever week-long silent meditation retreat for an Olympic uh, team. So this is the women's Olympic water polo team and their, uh, their coach and their uh, the, one of the psychologists at the U S Olympic committee uh, wanted them to go on a retreat to prepare for the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. And so this is something that these, um, these women had never been on a silent retreat before. I don't know if any of them had even gone a day without speaking. And so, and, and this is a team they are very connected. So we had them starting, we, um, you know, start learning mindfulness tools at during this retreat and mapping out their minds and starting to work with, uh, with their own habit loops. And about three or four days in, we had been, uh, we were on this hike where, you know, it's in Colorado, this beautiful place. And we go on these mindful hikes in the afternoons uh, to teach, you know, help them practice their skills while they're in motion, which is critical if you're, you know, learning, <laughs> learning mindfulness to work, you know, to, uh, to use in the Olympics, for example, yeah. we got to the top of this, this ridge um, at, at, to this point where they could lo look over the valley. And my co-leader, uh, her name is uh, Dr. Robin Baudette, she and I decided that was the time to teach them our superpower mantra. So, so we'd been emphasizing the attitude of curiosity all, all along. And we can see how, you know, when we get caught up in self-judgment or shame or worry or regret, um, we can start to map these habits out, but often we don't know how to work with them. So for example, this is a, you know, worry was a very real, it was very tangible for these folks. There were only uh, 11 spots on the Olympic team and there were 16 of these athletes on this retreat. And so five of them knew that they, you know, they were not going to make the team and they didn't know when they were going to get cut. 
and we still don't, you know, this is, this is how, how the trials go for this team. Wow. So they, you know, a lot of, a lot of worry, a lot of fear, um, for, you know, for, especially for, for some of the athletes. And so we were working with them, helping them work with these types of things uh, so that they could learn to work with habit loops, which is going to serve them the rest of their lives, whether they make the team, whether they get an Olympic gold medal or not. Um, but it's, it's not that easy to just notice worry and let it go. And so curiosity, we were emphasizing curiosity is like, oh, get curious about what worry feels like, just like the patient or the person in our unwinding anxiety program that I mentioned. But we hadn't brought out the superpower yet. And we thought that this was a great time to do it. So on the count of three, we're up on this ridge. We're all looking over this valley. It was quiet because they were all in silence. (laughs) And, uh, And, you know, we looked at each other and one, two, three, and we went, Hmm. <laughs> and the athletes looked at us like we were crazy, which, you know, justifiably. And then we did it again. Hmm. And we said, you know, and, and then they start smirking and they start, you know, laughing and, you know, we have them do it with us. Okay. Let's do this together. Hmm. What does this feel like? Well, what's it like when we actually drop into our embodied experience? Hmm. Is a very non cognitive, like a non-thinking way to elicit that interest curiosity. So for anybody that's got, you know, that that wants to be curious about anything, like if somebody's anxious, they can go, hmm, what does anxiety feel like in my body? And we can even have them ask simple questions like, is it more on the right side or the left side of my body? Hmm, is it on the right side? Is it on the left side? It doesn't matter what side it's on but it can help us tap into this inherent superpower. We're like, oh, what does curiosity feel like? I'm sorry, what does anxiety feel like? But that, it's that, that slip was, oh, it's actually curiosity that we're feeling in that moment. Hmm. And so we're shifting from being caught up in anxiety to kind of putting out that fire with curiosity itself. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, cause I had, um, one of the reasons when I first reached out to you last year or sometime, um, was I had a patient who found apps that you had, and I had also spoken to them about medications, but they chose a young man chose to actually use the app. And, and 30 days later, he actually said, I, I don't need medication. This app mm. was working great. And it was so powerful to actually see, cause we had done the GAD seven, which is, um, for those who don't know, it's just an objective measurement of, you know, feelings that they're having uh, throughout a period of two weeks. And it had dropped dramatically. Um, And I think I texted you those results and stuff, but it was really phenomenal to see um, that power helping someone do that and that curiosity and breaking literally anxiety as a habit. I never would have thought of anxiety as a habit. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, how did you, now I'm getting off topic, but I am curious. <laughs> so, What's that feel like? Hmm. So how, how did you decide that anxiety was actually a habit loop? Because just for those who are tuning into this and they're curious, because there's so much anxiety in today's world. There is. I think it's in our society, it's at higher levels than ever at least recorded before. So we had found with our Eat Right Now program, so we had developed this, you know, eating app to help people learn mindfulness, and we're getting, you know, we we're getting pretty good results with it. We st- published a study where we had gotten, I think, forty percent reduction in craving-related eating. So we started asking people, 
you know, what, you know, how are you doing this? You know, I mean, we had targeted specific mechanisms around eating, you know, we get stressed, we eat and we feel better. And so the stress eating habit loops were pretty well described. And so we could target those with this training. And we were finding mechanistically it was doing that. But we were also noticing that one of the big triggers for people to eat was anxiety. And they started saying, hey, you know, can you develop an anxiety program? <laughs> and so I said, I don't know. I mean, I mean, you know, I'm a psychiatrist, so I'd worked a lot with people with anxiety, but I hadn't thought about it until then as a potential habit loop. And it, and it turns out that there's a... Dec there are decades of literature on this topic showing that anxiety can be reinforced through negative reinforcement. So we, we feel like there's a negative emotion like fear. That's the trigger. And then we start to worry. That's the behavior. And then the result is that we start to feel more in control or even avoid that negative emotion, even though worry is not a great emotion unto itself. So it can get reinforced. But the problem is that worry itself, as I mentioned, doesn't feel good. And we're not actually that much in control. So as our brains figure this out, the worry starts to spiral unto itself. And so anxiety creates worry and worry creates more anxiety. And then the two just you know, take us down into this black hole or this spiral of anxiety. So it turns out that anxiety can be negatively reinforced just like any other habit, which I hadn't known, but was curious about as, you know, as these folks were describing their experiences. And that was what led us to uh, feeling pretty confident that we could develop a program. Hmm. And so that is really, I mean, it's really cool. And then when we start doing our conferences now too, because we're, um, when I speak to patients and do different things speaking, I've been actually, I pull out your paper and then share your stuff with people and say, listen, if I combine what you're teaching with the whole food plant-based diet, I really feel like it's a dynamite pairing mm -hmm. and um, it seems to work really, really well. And so it makes me more curious. <laughs> this is getting bad. I'm, I'm just using this. Bad <laughs> but um, the, the thing here too, is I'm, when you look at, like, for example, my daughter went to Spain this year with a group of friends and being a controlling, worried mother, <laughs> I was like, you know, there's a little find me app on my phone. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And so whenever she, if I wake up and I was worried about where she was, I would <laughs> find out where she was. And it was like this deprivation curiosity. But then mm. I almost think it made it worse. Like you said, this negative reinforcement because yeah. I had a tool to, to ease it. And then I was like, I need more of it. I need more of it. And um, I kind of became a tad bit anxious about her being over there. And I was so relieved when she was on a plane coming back home and not that she was ever in danger or anything right. with a group of friends safe. She's a, a good kid, well, young adult, I should say. And, you know, um, but that I can see where that happens and uh, very quickly, but the curiosity works well too in the middle of a panic. So I went, um, scuba diving with my family a couple years ago in December off the Keys in Florida. And um, it was rough waters. <laughs> and um, not scuba diving, we went snorkeling, excuse me. And I had been swimming plenty of times, lots of snorkeling, but I had not been in rough waters like that in some time or if ever actually that in that far out in the ocean. And um, I actually started to bit, feel a bit panicked. And I was like, Hmm. <laughs> it's like, why am I feeling panicked? I look under the water. It's calm. It's okay. There's people around me. And it, it really was that I had to pull in the curiosity of why 
I was feeling panicked in that, in that moment and it worked great. And I went on and had a great rest of the day, but it took me about 10 minutes to calm down, but it was really, um, a a really concrete uh, example of what you're describing is that curiosity helping you pull out of a panic moment. Yes. I think that's a great example of it, you know, and I saw it just, what is, uh, two days ago in my clinic, I saw a patient that I'd been uh, seeing for about five months who had severe panic, for example, severe panic disorder, where he had this consistent fear of um, getting in a wreck in the, on the highway in his car. And he was basically homebound. When he came to see me, he walked in the door. He was visibly shaken because you know he, he had made it to my office, even though it was only a couple of miles from his house, but just not, you know, he was that, he was that severely um, you know, caught up in his panic. Well, fast forward four months, I was walking out of class. I teach at Brown University. I was walking out of class in Providence and the School of Public Health is on this main road. And lo and behold, this guy drives by me, rolls down his window and waves. Hey, Dr. Judd, he's an Uber driver now. What? (laughs) He's an Uber driver. So what did you, how did you even approach that? Because I think that is so relevant to so many people. Like, how do you even begin the conversation with someone in teaching them? (laughs) This. <laughs> yeah, with him, it was, we started by just mapping out his habit loop. So within, you know, the first couple of minutes of him coming in for the first visit, you know, he was telling, giving me his history and I was trying to get a sense for what was going on. And so we were able to map out several habit loops. So one was around the driving, you know, you have a thought that you're going to get in a wreck. That's the trigger. The behavior is that you don't drive. And then the reward is you can avoid that. So avoidance was a big thing for him. And so, and actually I drew it out on a piece of paper for him, which actually connected us really nicely. Cause they said, okay, you, you know, you're listening, you get, <laughs> and I felt good because I understood what he was talking about. And then he went on to map several more. So he described where he had gone to a restaurant with his girlfriend to eat. Uh, I think it was sushi or something. He had this thought, Oh, maybe I'm allergic to, to fish. He's not allergic to fish. His rational mind said, you're not allergic to fish, but he got so panicked that they had to leave and they, you know, they had to leave their dates um, at that restaurant because he was so freaked out. So that's, that, that was his baseline. The other thing I'll mention is he was hypertensive. He was about 180 pounds overweight. Uh, and he later told me he had a fatty liver from not eating well. So he came back. So I gave him our unwinning anxiety app and I said, okay, map out your habit loops. I'll see you in two weeks. You know, let's go from there. He comes back two weeks later and he walks in the door, big smile on his face. I said, what? And he said, oh, I lost 14 pounds. And I said, I thought we were working on anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, no, I realized that I eat because of my anxiety as a way to relieve my anxiety. And it doesn't really help. So he, he got firsthand experience with seeing the non-reward that comes from eating and also the negative reward because he didn't feel good about his weight and he knew that it was affecting his health, his blood pressure, his liver, and all these things. Wow. So you know, he said it was pretty easy just to cut out that stress eating hmm. because I really wasn't seeing a benefit from it. But I, once I mapped that piece out, I could, I could just let go of it. So, you know... Um, Fast forward, I went to when I saw him a couple of days ago. He's now lost 80 pounds. 
oh my gosh. He's, his hypertension is gone. He's normotensive um, and his fatty liver is resolved. So all of that from, you know, just mapping out those eating habit loops. But with his anxiety over the course of the next couple of months when I was working with him, as he could map these out, he could start to bring in his mindfulness practices that he was learning with the Unwinding Anxiety app and see, oh, I can actually, you know, can I get curious? What does this feel like when I have, you know, this fear? Uh, can I notice that these are just thoughts that are coming up in my head? Like, oh, are you allergic to fish? And I can just notice that as a thought as compared to, oh, maybe I am allergic to fish suddenly, magically, <laughs> when I haven't been for 40 years, you know? Right. Right. And he was able to map those out, realize that, you know, that these are just thoughts and emotions and sensations in his body and bring in his curiosity superpower to say, oh, is this real? Is this not real? What's this feel like? Does this come and go? And, you know, as I mentioned, became an Uber driver. That is incredible. So this makes me think of a few different things, but first of all, labels in the sense. So people say, oh, I have anxiety. I'm an anxious person, right? So they, Mm -hmm. they have now um, seen themselves or they've labeled themselves as anxious or as a diabetic or hypertensive or someone who's just overweight. Cause you know, my grandparents were, or my parents were diabetic or whatever. Right. And so I'm curious what you think of, <laughs> <laughs> it is not going to stop. Um, so, <laughs> so labels as almost a negative, um, reinforcement in a sense too, because then you're going to be able to avoid, you know, dealing with it. I don't know. What do you think about that? Because when I, when I have people curious about the idea of actually eating better and reversing these, some of these chronic diseases, um, or at least making them significantly better, that is really powerful for people. Um, when you tap into that and I make them curious about a different future without the chronic disease and without the label, because they've always been said, Oh, you're a diabetic. You'll be one forever. Um, so what do you think about that? Yeah, the labels are can be really detrimental, and I think you're you're bringing this up. So I haven't thought about this much, but just mm-hmm. what immediately comes to mind is a label is a concept that is not specific. So, what does "I'm a diabetic" mean? It's a concept, you know. Right. But if you break it down to its component elements, it means you know my my pancreas isn't working as well as it needs to, or my cells aren't working as well at, you know, my insulin receptors or whatever, you know, there's something that's affecting my body's ability to process sugar and, and do all this stuff. So I'm a diabetic and it could mean, Oh, I have to eat certain types of foods or avoid certain types of foods or whatever, or exercise or lose weight or, you know, all these things. If we break it down to the component elements, we can actually get very concrete and say, okay, well, what is this actually, how does this manifest in the moment? And we can work with each of those elements so that it's not like some overarching thing that just seems insurmountable. It can just be, okay, well, you know, it's this, it's this, it's this. And that's actually, you know, it's, it's interesting you bring that up, but that's exactly how we help people work with emotions where somebody says, I'm anxious, when I say, okay, what, is, what does that feel like in your body? Because I'm anxious just feels too big and mm-hmm. it doesn't have handholds. You know, they don't have a place to, to be able to grab it or to, to start to, um, to climb out of, you know, it's like this big pit and it's, you know, the walls are smooth and they can't climb out. Well, if you say, okay, well, what is anxiety? Well, it's thoughts. 
suddenly there's a handhold of a thought or you can start to climb. Um, it's sensations in my body. Well, what are those sensations feel like? Oh, it's tightness, it's tension, it's burning. You know, my shoulders are tense. There's another handhold because they can work with all those things and start to see, oh, a thought comes and goes. These sensations come and go. And we can actually bring curiosity to those specific elements and work with each of those elements using curiosity as compared to I'm anxious. How, you, where do you bring, you know, you can't bring curiosity to that because it's too much of a concept. Right. And I think that makes a lot of sense for patients who've been labeled as a diet. Let's take diabetes, for example. Yeah. So I work with a lot of diabetics. And so when I have someone who says, oh, I have type 2 diabetes, a refill of medications or something. I was like, well, did, you know, of course I consider that an invitation to discuss diabetes. So I do. And so I was like, so tell me, did anyone ever explain to you what actually causes diabetes? Like why you're a diabetic on a cellular level? And I think that question why, cause I'm, I was listening to, you, you know, just as we, as we converse today, um, I think that what versus the why, right? So it's, you know, why are you a diabetic? Not what are you? You're a diabetic. And I think mm -hmm. that helps bring that hmm moment in. And I was like, maybe I should start with hmm. Maybe did anyone explain to you why you're a diabetic? But I go into the elements like you're describing yeah. Yeah. and give them the handholds of this is what's happening and this is why you can get better by changing certain foods and you know doing certain behaviors that will help. And um, it really gives them, I think it empowers them and they yeah. feel so much calmer, right? Because I think there's a lot of anxiety just with chronic disease. Um, right. People feel hopeless and helpless and they feel like as a victim to the circumstances of this disease process. Right. And it moves from this black box of like diabetes or anxiety or whatever into, well, it's this, this, and this, and I can work with this, this, and this. Right. The other piece that it also opens up is the exploration around, so let's say whole food plant-based diet. Oh, what's it like when I eat you know, junk food as my calories versus eating, you know, eating a whole food plant-based diet. Um, out of full disclosure, I'm a big fan of full <laughs> plant-based diet, as I'm sure people can hear just from the tone of my voice. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Um, I wonder if he's plant-based. Hmm. Yeah. But for me, it was, it's, you know, eating junk food. I, back in junior high school, I used to race BMX bikes and I started exploring. Think my mom suggested, you know, well, why don't you explore, you know, eating junk food versus eating like peanut butter and, and honey sandwiches? Because I would have to race multiple heats in a day and I would run oh, out wow. of energy. And so I started exploring them. Hmm, what's this like? And it was so much better. I had so much more sustained energy. I just felt better, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of moved me in the direction of really exploring this. And I can't imagine now um, going back and eating, you know, eating a bunch of meat or eating a bunch of dairy. It just, it just feels so good. And so I'm sure you see this a lot where you have people just explore what are the results, right? You can, they can use that same reward-based learning system. What are those results when you eat healthy food versus junk food, when you eat minimally processed food versus, you know, a totally processed food with a shelf life of 20,000 years? <laughs> Twinkies. Yeah, exactly. And I actually, I use that as an example of how to build healthy habits, right? So mm. we're moving them away from eating the standard American diet to a whole food plant-based diet. And I said, you know, what's going to happen is this is going to reinforce the habit of eating healthy because you feel so good. Yeah, It's yeah. very, very powerful when you feel well, because I mean, I'll be 
I'll be 49 in a few days. And I'll tell you, I don't feel 49. I feel like I'm 29. And, um, you know, I, I don't, I can't even fathom eating or living any different way because that's just, it's just not going to, why would I do that? <laughs> right, right, right. So the so, yeah. And my, you know, it's fun too, because my husband lost 70 pounds. He finished his first full Ironman this summer and he'll be 50 in April. So he's no young chicken either. So, you know, again, he, he's excited to share that message with other people and like, mm-hmm. why would we do anything different? And so, right. um, you know, it's, it is, and it, and it feeds into it and you feel excited and you share it with other people. I had a patient, (laughs) oh, bless him in Colorado before I moved away and came back. Um, and he was like, I, he had all sorts of issues, overweight, um, high blood pressure, pain. And I was like, let's just talk about plant-based. He goes, listen, Dr. Marvis, you're a vet. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be respectful and listen to you, but I'm not going to go plant-based. I said, well, just give me a minute. <laughs> so I pull out the vet card. I'll use any, anything to make someone listen. And he listened. What a sweetheart. And he decided, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> for 30 days, but then I don't want you bugging me again. I'm like, okay. Um, and so of course what happens is he loses all this weight, feels so much better. He becomes the biggest evangelist for a plant-based diet. He goes, every time I see him, he goes, I don't understand why my sister won't do this. Nobody's listening. I don't understand why they don't. I was like, well, ask yourself why you wouldn't listen to begin with. You were very set that you weren't going to do this. And yeah. He goes, hmm. <laughs> he said hmm. that. Hmm. And I think that's helpful too when we look at how do we pique someone else's interest is like, right. hmm, how can right. I get my kids to eat better? Hmm. How can I get my spouse to, you know, venture into eating plant based with me? I think that's a great tool for relationships. It is. And that actually brings us to one other piece of curiosity that I found fascinating as I as I was learning about this, is that when there's this inverted U-shaped curve around curiosity, where the on the y-axis, the peak is higher curiosity. And on the x-axis, the two ends of it that where there's minimal curiosity is when we know nothing and when we think we know everything. <laughs> So when we know nothing, you know, we're not that curious, you know, for example, you know, it's like, oh, you know, hey, Judd, why don't you solve Fermat's last theorem? And I'm like, you know, no, thanks. I, I, I'm not even a big fan of math. I don't even know what theorem, thera, I don't even know what the plural of theorem is. <laughs> so it's like, know. I'm zero, I'm zero on that. I'll leave that to the mathematicians. But let's use your, I'm just hypothetically speaking about your patient who maybe he thought he knew everything about why he would never go plant-based. Mm-hmm. And so he was just not interested because, you know, he, he's quote unquote the expert. He's like, I'm just not, I'm just not going there. I've heard about this. It's just a bunch of wackos that go plant-based, whatever. I'm not interested. So both ends of the spectrum, when we know nothing about some, you know, a topic, like I have no idea why I would ever go plant-based or I know every reason why I would never go plant-based just using that as an example. So if we can move people up on the curve just a little bit in either of those, um, on either of those ends, whether it's knowing nothing or knowing everything that naturally piques our curiosity. So if, you know, if somebody's not interested at all, or doesn't know anything about it and you say, you know, going plant-based can actually help your diabetes. Oh, really? If they're diabetic. Mm -hmm. Oh, 
oh, hmm, tell me more. And so now they want to learn more. Or if somebody thinks they know everything and, you know, they say, well, you know, I'm never going to be able to get enough protein going plant-based, just as an example. You say, well, actually, that's a myth. Did you know the ancient gladiators were actually plant-based? And really? I just learned <laughs> recently. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. Do you watch the Game Changers? Yeah. I did. It was a great movie. So just, but just using that as an example, both of those can move us in the direction of curiosity and peaking that curiosity. So then naturally we want to learn more and then you, you, you just let the ball roll from there. It's, it's already in motion. Interesting. So that is a really cool tool for any like health coaches or anybody. I mean, even if you're a mom who's trying to get their kids to eat better, you know, thinking something and be curious because there was also something in your article about, hold on, I wrote it down. Um, priming mm. with trivia. So you have a little bit of trivia yes. and yes. that primes them to learn even more. So in our example of plant-based eating or even getting kids to eat better or something to that degree, anyone eating better, can you think of any examples or maybe you can give an example of what that means exactly or the study that you referenced? Yes. Yeah, so there were, these were folks just using trivia questions to pique people's curiosity and they found that it actually helped their learning process. They would lay down memory uh, and remember these random pictures of people's faces. So that was a, an aside experiment where they were checking to see if it improved their memory. But to give a concrete example, it could be, I'll just use an example from nutrition um, because it's in, my, it's in my brain now. Uh, so a trivia a uh, question could be around, let's say vitamin B12. Well, if you're, if, it, if you're a vegetarian, you have to take B12 supplements. So there's a reason not to be vegetarian. Well, a trivia, uh, it, if this is true, I think it's true, but I, I'm not the expert here. So people should fact check this. Um, that B12 comes from bacteria in the dirt. And so we used to get this naturally when we drank water from streams or when we ate food that wasn't scrubbed, you know, clean of every pathogen you know, in, the, in the world. And in fact, um, they give animals uh, that we eat. B12 uh, injections. Yeah, they have to give them B12 injections because they, they get antibiotics. And so they kill the bacteria that get them the B12 that we would get our B12 from them. So the, curio the trivia question could be, well, you know, it's actually, it's, it's not some inherent flaw in being vegetarian um, that we don't get B12. It's that, you know, this is how we get B12. Here's the trivia question is it comes from bacteria in the dirt. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. And then we can, you know, like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe it's not that we are inherently, you know, um, paleo diet people. Mm -hmm. So long answer to your short question, but that's, there's an example of a, of a curiosity question. Yeah, no, I wrote um, B12 clinical guidelines for where I work right now. So oh. I, I dive deep into the B12. Um, <laughs> they're like, oh, you're vegan. Why don't you do the B12? And I'm like, yeah, I'm on it. Um, but yeah, so what happens is the B12 in the gut of animals and absorbed in the muscles. So when you eat animal, that's when you get that. But animals right. now in, in industrial agriculture are confined in spaces that they're you're not outside eating, you know, the grass and pulling up the dirt and eating the bacteria as well. And they're getting loads of antibiotics. Um, and so, yeah, there's many reasons that most of actually my B12 deficient patients were people who ate meat. Um, yeah. There's a lot of issues with um, inflammation in the gut and absorption. So I could talk about that forever. Um, I should probably write an article about hmm. that actually. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. But so 
if there's any one last little bit, because I know you have, we're running short on time here, um, can you give me an idea or give us a last bit of advice on the super hard curiosity and what would you say would be the one takeaway from our conversation today that you would really like to highlight? Yeah, I think the take home message is that we all have this inherent superpower. So it's not like we have to go out and get it or learn something new. Uh, the second piece is that it, it, fits beautifully with understanding how our minds work. So if we can, you know, if we can see when we're stuck in some habit loop around, oh, I think I know nothing, or I think I know everything about something, um, we can bring in curiosity there. Hmm, what does this feel like? And we can start to notice the difference between deprivation and interest curiosity. And even if we're in deprivation curiosity mode and really, you know, racking our brain, like I have to know the answer to something, we can bring in that superpower of, hmm, what does this feel like? And we can actually bring interest curiosity right into the deprivation curiosity piece so that we can, even if there's a destination that we're trying to get to, we can always be enjoying the ride. And that's, you know, that's really the one take home is curiosity really helps us in the enjoy the ride through life, no matter what's coming at us, whether it's anxiety or overeating or, you know, trying to decide whether we want to eat a plant-based diet or whatever, you know, um, it, it really helps the ride be much more enjoyable. Absolutely. Because you're, you're going to get your answers. It just makes them, it just makes it easier to consume. I mean, yeah. I think that's amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Judd Brewer. We appreciate your time as always. <laughs> thank you. This is fun. It is a lot of fun. And I uh, hope everyone listening enjoys this and check out drjud.com. I'll put the link in the show notes and um, we'll see you next time.